Hello, and welcome back to Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro, a podcast all about the Bible, theology, and all things related to the Christian faith. I'm the Ryan Half of Ryan and Brian, and this is episode number 47 and our sixth episode of season two. This week, Brian and I are welcoming back Ryan Burge. We had Ryan on in season one talking about his book, The Nuns, which is all about those who don't have any particular religious affiliation. In this episode, we are discussing Ryan's new book, 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America. We talk about why he wrote the book, what are some of the myths and data that stood out to both Brian and I, and also discuss how to have hard conversations around some of these topics, because some of them are hard conversations. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that you can find us at thebiblebistro.com, on Instagram and Facebook at The Bible Bistro, and on YouTube at Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. We have also set up a Patreon account, so if you're enjoying the podcast and would like to support our continued work, you can do that. You can find a link for that in the show notes, but also by going to the website, thebiblebistro.com, and clicking on the link at the top. If you can't financially support us, you could also support the Bistro by simply sharing the podcast with others. That helps as well. All right, let's jump right into our conversation with Ryan Burge. Hey, Brian, welcome back to the Bistro. Hey, Ryan, good to, good to see you. I'm here from, you know, the, the ever mobile Bistro. I'm in a new setting today, so. Yes, we'll yes. Goes. Well, we're glad that you can make it. And you're braving the snow right yeah. now, right? Or yeah, well, ice on ice. The window. so far it's ice, no later, but uh, you may even hear it hitting the window a little bit later on, so. so good times, yeah, it's, good times. It, yeah. <laughs> February. So. Yes. Well, today is a special day in the Bistro. Yeah. We are welcoming back our first ever guest that we had on the Bistro, and that is Ryan Burge. Welcome, Ryan. Hello, Ryan Sarver. How are you? I'm well, Ryan Burge. <laughs> Ryan. Ryan. Brian. Yes. Ryan. So Ryan, like myself, is from an area, South Central Illinois, not Kentucky, but close, but not. And Brian is the author of the book, The Nuns, which we talked about in the first uh, podcast. And now you've got a new book coming out, Ryan. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's called 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America. And it ships, well, it's actually already shipping, but it's, it technically releases on March 1st of 2022. Uh, it's uh, 20 little self-contained chapters about little things that people believe about religion or religion and politics that are just frankly not true factually if you look at the data. And um, it's kind of wrapped in this whole package of you can read one chapter individually or you can read all of them. You don't have to read them in order. You can read them out of order. You can pick it up. You can put it down. I mean, every chapter probably takes 15 minutes to read and you can, you can learn something. So it's kind of like a perfect coffee table book in that way. Yeah, very cool. So why did you um, – so you've you've done the nuns where you talked about that, uh, you know, there are people that were non-affiliated. Who were the people that were not uh, religiously affiliated? So you kind of set the stage for that. And now we've got the 20 myths. Why did you decide to write 20 myths? Like what – What's, what's your goal for this for this book? My goal for this book is to be able to point to people when they yell at me online and say things that are untrue <laughs> and go, look, it's right there. Chapter seven of the myth says that what you're, what you're saying right now is not true. Actually, it really did. Like a, a big a genesis of it for me was just being very online in quotation marks, right? I'm very online. You right. get people saying things to you online that are just ridiculous and based in sort of half-truths or whole myths or just wholesale. And I always wonder, like, where they come from, right? Where these ideas emerge from. That's another story entirely. I think sometimes it's nefarious yeah. people trying to push a narrative. But sometimes I think right. it's just 
it's just laziness. You know, you read a headline, but you don't read the article, so you never really dig into like what what we're trying to say here. So I really wanted to put a marker down and say, here, here's 20 things that you you believe about the world that are probably false, or at least not as true as you think they are, or a lot more nuanced than you think they are. Right. And so hopefully people can you know kind of take a different piece of it. And even like I wrote it for like let's say like a, even like a Sunday school class might find it interesting to use, or like um uh, an undergraduate you know like a religion and politics class an undergraduate. So it's really meant for you know the general audience just like the nuns was. Yeah. I, re- I recommended your other book to, uh, uh, you know, to several church leaders. I think it's important for, and I think this one's very important for church leaders as well. You're not always going to agree necessarily with, um, uh, with it, but you know, the, the thing is you're, you're setting out the data in a way that's kind of hard to argue with and, and, to a certain extent as well. Uh, well, and we'll talk about some of that as well, but I do, I think it'd be good for church leaders. Here's, here's one question I had for you is, um, if you could tell, church leaders, one thing about statistics or, or how, how we approach them, what would you say about that? Cause that's kind of, that's your area. And that's what yeah. I kept noticing in these chapters is you kept coming back and saying, well, look, this, you know, this idea of how statistics work and statistical power, but it's, it's, it's difficult for most people to understand. I think. Yeah. I think leave, leave it to the experts. I think that's, okay. that's sort of the, the, I mean, pastors are great at what they do, but Sometimes they use statistics like a bludgeon, like a cudgel to make a point when maybe that's not exactly correct. But, you know, these like I'm a pastor. I preach every Sunday. I call them pastor stories, which are not true. We just keep telling these kind of made up stories over and over again. I think with statistics, it's kind of the same way. We find like we latch on to one thing and we keep going with it. And unfortunately, most Americans just don't have the tools to try to check this kind of data themselves. And so I think what I would tell pastors is find someone you trust, hopefully me, but, you know, Barna (laughs) or, you know, or Lifeway or, you know, there's some academics out there that are doing really good work. And then, you know, trust us that we're giving you the most objective, you know, neutral read on the data we possibly can, because for the average person to do what we do, you know, you, you don't fix your own, you know, electrical substation behind your house, right? You have someone who's trained to do that. And in right. a lot of ways, what we do is the same way. I've been spending 15 years learning all the nuances of data and how to analyze sure. it. So you really need to trust someone else to do this kind of work and present it to you in a way that makes sense. Here's let me let me push back on that just a little bit, though, because, I mean, what what you're dealing with in this book is myths, right? You're saying these mm-hmm. are the kind of the common misunderstandings that are out there, which are uh, you know, like you said, promulgated by experts, sometimes maybe from nefarious means or just mm-hmm. just other means. So when you're saying find somebody to trust, I mean, how 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 am I to know? Like, how am I to know? Like yeah. what? You know, because these are myths that you put up, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, I would say ask yourself who benefits from that number. Right. Okay. Like who who is benefiting from that statistic, whether it be materially, financially in church attendance wise or trying to sell books as a guy who's trying to sell books, it's funny that I'm saying this, <laughs> but you know, like I, I think like, and actually I wrote these 20 myths in such a way where I was thinking of my evangelical friends and saying, I need to write some chapters that would make them feel good about themselves, but also some chapters that might make them need to reflect on a few things. And I did right. the same thing with keeping atheists in mind at the same time, right? What are some things they need to know that would make them feel better about themselves, but also some things that they really need to think about internally and introspectively. Question. Okay. So it's like fighting bias is is really what I spend a lot of my mental energy doing, saying, am I giving that group too hard of a time or not hard enough time? And that's what makes right. it really, really hard because I'm an academic, so I get paid regardless of who I make mad or happy or vice versa. There are other people who have to sell books 
to 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 you know keep the lights on. I think that right. puts you in a different situation. You 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 have to be more biased in that situation because your financial livelihood depends on you making one group happy and selling a, a, a book to a, a certain group. I don't really care about that. I'm still getting paid for me, i.e., whether I write books or not. So for me. I'm trying my best to just be as biased and neutral as I possibly can. Unbiased and neutral as I possibly can. Yeah. Okay. So let me share a couple of these these myths. So if someone, you know, no one's going to be able to read this right in front of us, but if evangelicalism is in decline, um, researchers are biased towards Christians, mm-hmm. college leads young people away from religion. Like there's some really interesting myths yeah. in there. So how do and I know you kind of alluded to this, but like why these myths? Like, what do you think is the importance of tackling these myths at this time? Yeah. So I think for a lot of them, it was just stuff I saw come up over and over and over again, right? The evangelicals and the climate was actually the very first myth I wrote because that's something I see just bouncing around all the time is especially a lot of people who are liberals, political liberals or atheists or agnostics want to say like the end of religion is near. And I kind of want to add a nuance to that and say, yeah, the nuns are rising. Obviously the first book makes that kind of clear, but you know, evangelicalism is not losing because the nuns are going up. It's actually the moderate religious people that are the ones who are fleeing religion and going to becoming nuns. Evangelicalism, I, I argue in the book, is actually as strong today as it was 12 years ago. Right. Yeah, I thought that was a good. I thought it was a really good chapter and and uh, interesting the way you put it because you do you hear that narrative out there quite a bit. I wanted to ask you something, that, and this is only marginally related. This has been going on for a long time. The idea of what what do we mean when we say evangelical? I mean, even mm-hmm. when I was even a you know college seminary student, I can remember these discussions. So that's been you know 110 years ago. But uh, uh, how would you define evangelical, and and how do you think that that's that that idea is changing? So, interestingly enough, I've been invited to do a debate in Washington, D.C. at the end of March <laughs> about this question of what is an evangelical. And you had to understand, I'm okay. a social scientist first, right? So I, sure. I approach the world as a social scientist was. I'm not a theologian. I don't, I don't play one on TV. I don't act like I want to have very right. little Bible training. So for me, it's a social construct. Right. I, I think primarily, especially if you look at the data, too, I think it's becoming increasingly clear that evangelicalism is drawing people in who are not theologically evangelical, right? who do not believe okay. in crucicentrism, who do not believe in conversionism, who are people who say, I'm an evangelical because I'm a white conservative Republican. Right? right. And even though I don't go to church, I don't care because for them, evangelicalism is not about church. It's about what that identity means in social space, which means okay. I'm the kind of person who would be an evangelical. So therefore, I am an evangelical. So for me, it's a self-identification question. Are you evangelical Christian or not? And if you say yes, if you say yes, I'm not going to come in and say, no, you're not. Like, you know what I mean? You pick what you <laughs> right. are. Okay. Uh, you know, like uh, Maya Angelou said, when people tell you who they are, believe them. Right. So right. I'm, I'm a big believer in like those are not errors on surveys. Those are people picking that word because they like the attachment to it. And so, you know, there's this idea that like evangelicalism has become toxic. And in some ways, I think it has for a lot of like liberal people, especially in religiously unaffiliated people. But for a lot of people, it's actually become very attractive for the reason it's become toxic mm, to other people. They're being drawn mm-hmm. to it because of the conservatism and the Republicanism and even the Trumpism and all the things that go along with that. So for every person that pushed away, I actually think it drew in the same number of people back. So that's why it stayed around a third of the population today says they're evangelical. So sure. you're saying that the definition is is changing significantly. That That's that's very helpful to me because, you know, that's I guess what I'm seeing is the people who theologically would have in the past, I think, identified as evangelical now 
almost saying, I don't want that. I don't want to be associated with that term. I mean, to a certain extent, I see I see some of that. Here's so. a stat for you. Ready? 40% okay. of self-described evangelicals go to church less than once a year. Wow. 40%. 40%. Wow. It was, yeah, it was 28% in 2008. It's 40% okay. today. About a quarter right. of them go to church seldom or never, which means, you know, like once every five years or less. So okay. it's... It's. I wrote. A, I wrote. A, I'm going to do a little name drop. I wrote a New York Times op-ed about this. You know, like the idea cool. that evangelicalism has become basically synonymous with republicanism. And here's something right. else going on that really blows people's minds: the share of people who say they're evangelical who are not Protestant has gone up as well. So now there's a phenomenon of born again Catholics, born again Jews, right. born again right. Muslims, because they're drawn. And by the way, amongst Muslims. The Muslims who say they're born again, it's a combination of two things. It's those who go to mosque more than once a week and those who are Republican. 50% of those people identify as evangelical on surveys because, again, they like – it's a moniker for saying I'm very religious – and I'm politically conservative. Politically conservative. Huh, that's that's the that's the combination that evangelical means in the modern ethos. And I I mean, no one owns a word. You know, I right. don't own this word. You don't own this word. No sure. one owns this word. So people latch onto it for whatever reason. And it's my job to try to figure out why they're latching onto it for non theological reasons. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask a question. So how do you how do we look at data then if the definitions become fuzzy? Like how do we interpret like you know, so we're seeing trends, but like people don't even understand the definition, you know, like in some ways, are they even answering the question that you think you're asking? Like, how do how does yeah. data parse through that? That's one of the most pernicious problems in social science. It's called the, the traveling problem is what it's called. Where it okay. gets really difficult is asking the same question in different countries. Because if you change the language, the words don't exactly mean the exact right. same thing in, in, in different countries. And like you mentioned, Ryan, when a word kind of morphs and, and means something different today than it means 20 or 30 years ago, I'm of the mind of I would rather keep asking the same question in the same way because I think it tells you something about how society is changing, about how people answer that question. Because if you change it, then you lose comparability. And that's right. where we – like, for instance, a lot of people are asking, like, are people – What's happened with church attendance due to COVID, which is a great question. That's a really hard methodological thing to parse out because a lot of these surveys, like for instance, the general social survey has been going 1972. They've been asking the attendance question the same way since 1972. Do you want to change it one time for 2020 or 2021? And what does that do to your comparability if you change it right. once and then go back to the old way when we go back to normal after COVID? So, you know, there's all these problems that are introduced by changing language. So I'm actually just a bigger fan of keeping it how it is. But then also the harder work that's coming in behind that, trying to understand why would someone say yes to this question in 2020 when they would say no to it in 1995, let's say. What's different about them and what's different about the word? Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that would hmm, that kind of bakes my brain. Well, like, how do you think through all that? <laughs> well, yeah. the last time you were on, you talked about that, that, that you know, this this you think this. Uh, other survey, which I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, it's, it starts with a C too. I remember, you know, I always oh, kind cooperative of election there, study, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That, that yep. one you say is 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 actually uh, more dense in terms of the uh, kind of data you have available, but it's just not been done as long in some ways. Yeah. So and, that one is uh, sixty one thousand people in twenty twenty took that survey, right? 
and it's been going on since 2008, basically. But I mean, I, and I wrote a piece, and, and actually in the book, I have a, you know, the chapter is that the researchers yeah. are biased towards Christians. We're not, and I get this online a lot. Like, why are you, you know, why are you so Christocentric? First thing is because I'm a Christian myself, so I understand that world better, <laughs> and I'm right. fully admitting my bias in that way. Like, if I write right. about Islam, I'm going to screw it up. I'm just 100 percent sure I will because I don't understand the nuances of Islamic culture and in the Muslim religion and any of those things. That's one part of it. The other part of it is we're just biased towards big numbers. And right. and for most of American history, Christianity has been the dominant religion in America. So I talk about like the general social survey would do 2,500 people. You'd be lucky to get 40 Latter-day Saints in that entire sample. You can't do anything with 40 people. Like statistically, right. it doesn't work that way. But right. when the when the cooperative election study comes around, sixty one thousand people. I have eight hundred and thirty five Mormons in the twenty twenty CS. Yep. So now I can cut by gender, I can cut by race, I can cut by age, I can cut by education because my top number is bigger. So I think I wrote a piece yep. for a religion news service saying we're in the we're entering into the golden age of religion data, and that's exactly mm. why because now we can look at very small slices of the American population, which we were completely incapable of doing yeah. even fifteen years ago. Yeah, that chapter was very. I thought that chapter was very helpful in, in understanding what you're doing and and some of the difficulties with looking at the data historically as well. So yeah. I thought that was really good. Yeah. Was there was there anything as you're putting this data together? I mean, I know you're in data all the time. You make like five charts a day or something like that. It's all over your Twitter, right? Is that what it is? Yeah. Like averaging five today? I uh, made fourteen hundred and seventy five last year. Yeah. So right about five a day, something like that. Okay. <laughs> Um, <laughs> which I made a graph so, of that, by the way. I made a graphs, calendar right, graph of right, my yes. graphs. So yeah, very meta. Um, yeah. So was there anything in these myths? I know we talked about that with the nuns. Like, was there anything as you put these myths together, like even the data surprised you as a Christian or maybe even myths that you believed in some ways that like you got, it was an eye opener for you as you went through some of these? Yeah, I think the one that I, I keep going back to is the idea that pastors talk a lot about politics from the pulpit. You know, that's that's one that that to me, that's a classic myth that I even still believed at some level before I we did surveys on this whole thing, because, you know, you the problem is when some pastor does talk about politics, the pulpit it makes the news. Right. right. It goes viral on social media. You see tons of examples of it. But and that's something I think about a lot is we always think about things we see and we never think about the things we don't see. Right. So there are how many churches are meeting on Sunday in America? Probably like. 75, 100,000 churches are meeting, and how many pastors actually reference politics at all from the pulpit? It's a fraction of a percent, right? right. And in the book, I mean, like if we ask people over the last 12 months, people who attend church, by the way, like are there, we ask them, have your, has your pastor talked about any of these issues in the last 12 months from the pulpit? And we, we had a whole smattering of left and right and center, poverty, immigration, abortion, gay marriage, all these things. 75% of people said my pastor did not discuss a single one of these issues over the last 12 months, which right. to me is like that number was, I knew it was going to be high, but I didn't realize it was going to be that high where, you know, the vast majority of American Christians do not hear political messages at all from the pulpit ever. It's just a small number who make all the noise is what we think about, not the vast majority. The right. modal outcome is you never hear politics from the pulpit. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I thought that was interesting. The, the, and I'm going to go ahead and just kind of say I, I would I think everybody should should read your book. I think church leaders especially should read your book. There are some things going to be th some things, and I would say read it with an open mind. Um, one of the things that I think that I saw you consistently talking about is our perception, and this is what you're talking about here. Basically, is our you know we have this kind of misguided perception of oh this is something pastors are always talking about that that the the data 
does not back up. And, and that's what I consistently kept seeing about other people, like the way we think about other, you know, the other political party or uh, other religious groups or, or these kind of things. I thought that was really a helpful idea. And I, and I think if we can read it with an open enough mind and, and, and kind of see that it, it will help us in having discussions with others, because in some ways we're kind of demonizing, we're kind of, uh, you know, assuming the worst about other people before we even enter into a discussion. And like you said, I think the, the picture is much more, much more nuanced, uh, I, I think than, than that. Now, all that was statement, I guess, what's my question here for you is, is, uh, how can we, I guess, I guess, and I, and I loved your last chapter. I'll go ahead and, well, I'll say, I'll say something about that later, later on. But, um, I guess my question for you is how can we, uh, most use that to engage, I think other people are to, you know, you, you talk about the value of discussion. How can we, yeah. how can we kind of bring that together? I guess. I think it's gen- genuinely be curious and open to other people. Right. I, I think the problem with evangelicalism that I that I grew up with was when you got into a religious discussion with someone else, you almost had a script, you know, like a rebuttal book in your head. Right. Of, if they say this, then you say that. And if I say this, then they're going to say that. And here's how to refute this thing. And here's the evidence for that thing. I think there's a huge difference between discussing to discuss and understand versus discussing versus to try to persuade someone. And I think the problem with the way that evangelicalism is always taught about religion is that doesn't just infect the way we think about religious discussion. It also changes the way we think about every discussion in our lives, where our goal is always trying to persuade the other person to our viewpoint. And I think that's actually kind of a terrible way to go about about debate in the 21st century. It should be discussing to try to understand the other person's position and really trying to understand it, right? Like really putting yourself in their position and saying, I don't see see it that way, but I understand why you see it that way. And I'm thinking more about it now because I'm seeing it from your perspective. Right. Like that the is old, such a valuable way to think about yeah. discussion. The old seek first to understand and then be understood in, instead of the other way around, you know, exactly right. you understand my, my viewpoint instead seek to understand first. I and the other thing good. is don't assume the worst about people. Right. Like, I think right. that's something that like, I really like, I'm really, really, um, angry about recently is people assume <laughs> they start a discussion yeah. by thinking the worst about the other person. Don't right. think the worst. Assume the best until they prove you wrong, and then you can go assume the worst <laughs> about them. But give them yeah. the benefit of the doubt because you know what you would want? You would want them to give you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. So, tr- you know, like to, the golden rule, right? Treat people yeah. the way you want to be treated. I think the problem is we don't do that in debate. We demonize. And I talk about this in the, in the intro to the book. If, yeah. you ask, if you ask Republicans what share of Democrats are atheists, they say it's a third. It's closer to 10%. You know, when you ask uh, um, Democrats what percentage of Republicans are rich, they say 50%. It's closer to 10%. You know, so we create... Yeah. yeah, I've used that just in the week I've, since I've read your book. I've I've used that a couple of different times. Good yeah. because like <laughs> that shows you that we we do this thing, and I didn't put it in the book because I couldn't find the reference to it. But I'll mention it here as a pastor story, I guess. But like in the late <laughs> 1980s, there was a, a Russian diplomat, a Soviet dem- diplomat, who came to the United States, and he was talking to all the media when he was in New York City, being very open, very gregarious, very interested in the American media, and he said. Someone asked him, you know, why are you why are you here first off and why are you talking to us so much? He goes, my job is to prove to you that I'm not the enemy. 
Mm, and I, I think right. about that all the time, yeah. right? With, with, when the Soviet Union was there, we always thought they were all out to kill us, and they were all godless, you know, heathen atheists. The average Russian did not give two rips about what was going on in America, and the average American shouldn't have given two rips what was happening to the average Soviet, right? Like, it's right. not us fighting. They're not that much different than we were. If we look at the world that way, imagine how much more communication we can have, how much more tolerance, how right. much more respect, how much more coordination and cooperation. I mean, what a world... If we don't assume the worst about the other side. Yeah. The thing you, you said that's made you mad. And I think the thing that has been most difficult about being a pastor over the past two years is I see Christians even assuming the worst about other Christians. It's not even, you know, in the past it's kind of been, you know, the, the outsiders, you know, the world where we kind of have the suspicion toward. But I see now. Uh, Christians, like you said, assuming the worst even of other Christians. So. And that's to me, like, listen, I'm, I'm to the. I grew up in a church. I went to a, you know, a, a, a Christian university. We had debates about everything from women pastors, transubstantiation to sure. once saved, always saved. And all. <laughs> now I'm to the age now where it's like, do you affirm the Apostles' Creed? Then okay, <laughs> we're we're on the same team. Like yeah. everything else to me is commentary at that point, that, and yeah, let's that, just move on. That worldview kind of helps us. Uh, yeah. The, the commonality there helps us see the world in a, in a similar enough way. Yeah. Yeah. The world, I tell people, if you believe that, then we're on the same team, period. End of discussion. I don't care what you believe about right. women pastors or who you vote for or abortion or gay marriage or whatever else. We are all on the same team. And I think, unfortunately, we've, we've made doctrine in the dogma. And everything's become dogma at some level. Right. And it's like, no, dogma is supposed to be a small set of things that you really, really believe. Yeah. And then doctrine sets on top of that. And yet somehow we've made everything in, into a dogmatic situation. And yeah. I think dogma, it can be deadly. I mean, let's yeah. be completely honest here. The people who flew those planes into buildings on 9-11 were 100% convinced that what they did was the right thing to do. Right. It was the you, truth. You, yeah. The, it, it reminds me of the conversation we had not too long ago with, uh, with uh, Chad. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Ragsdale about about this idea of you know we had we, another we guest point, on a couple weeks ago yeah we talked and, about and he talked about you know focusing on the center things and we we almost we, we come in with this idea that we almost have to defend every square, square inch of our own beliefs is where we are rather than focusing upon the things that are most important and that's kind of what you're saying when you say Apostles' Creed you're saying that central uh, yeah, core religious beliefs and, and we don't have to defend everything that's on the rim like and some of that's kind of going eh that's okay. We don't have to agree on this, but you know we need to agree on those core. We can tenets. still discuss it and be curious about it. But yeah, yeah, but don't fight about it. You right. know, don't have bad feelings and hard feelings. You know, don't walk away angry. My goodness. Right. Yeah. Well, I, so let, I want to talk a couple about a couple of these myths because a couple of them I uh, really liked, and I they were. It's interesting how you said it, and you know maybe myths for me. Um, one of the things was that college leads young people away from religion. I think that's an interesting one. Tell us a little bit about like what you found as you did some of that that research. Yeah, that's the one that like is popping like out of this whole book. So right. I mean, like kind of like passing it around to, and that one, uh, uh, an excerpt of that's actually going to run in the Wall Street Journal at the end of the month. Um, cool. That's the one they chose out of all of them. And what's but funny you heard is it here we, first. Just so, you, just, heard, you it heard it here first, first on Ryan O'Brien's <laughs> Bible Bistro. Yeah. Wall and Street then, Journal um, just and, following yeah, our coattails later. So. <laughs> what's funny about that is I sent that I sent the book to another um, publication, and the, you know I said which what, do you want to run an excerpt of the book, and yeah. they actually wanted to run the exact same chapter. Wow. Interesting. Which I was like, you can't run. You both get, Wall Street Journal gets it. This was not the Wall Street <laughs> Journal. You know, it was it was a good publication, but it's not. You know, it's not the Wall Street Journal. Right. Um, so the Salem News and Democrats. Uh, the Salem uh, Times Commoner. Salem Times Commoner. Please do not disparage. Yeah. 
or the Times Samuel. Communist, as it was called. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yes. It's had all kinds of it. names. Um, so that one came about because I was just so I actually do sometimes I do like call in radio shows like Christian radio shows and like a lot of people are like you're a college professor and my kids are going to college how can I make sure they don't lose Jesus when they go to college I heard that over and over again you know like this idea that like right. they go to college and they're going to just lose Jesus somewhere along the way and you know I think it goes back to that God's Not Dead movie which you know was actually I read about a bunch Kevin about it Sorbo. Kevin, yeah, Kevin Sorbo. Sorbo, the atheist philosophy professor. That movie was made for $2 million and cleared $65 million at the box office, Holy by the way. Holy cow. Yeah, so That's like a, a pretty good runaway, return. breakaway hit. And there's been four versions of it now. There's a God's right. Not Dead 4. God's still God's not still dead. God's still not dead. Right? God's not really deader. not dead. Yeah, really not dead. <laughs> and in that you know, in that first movie, it's this kid who's, by the way, his last name is Wheaton, which is like the most evangelical thing in the entire world. And he goes away to a public university, and the professor says, you got to sign a pledge in my philosophy class to pass that says that God is, in fact, dead. And so the whole movie is like this conflict between this, this student and the professor and back and forth. I think people like... They have this concept in their mind that, like, first off, that college professors are all, like, elbow-patch-wearing, you know, Nietzsche-reading atheists who try to convince right. their students to be like they are, which is, by the way, patently false. That's absolutely not true. But the other thing is, it's like they get out of the nest, right, like out of the controlled environment, and they go into the wild, and they, and they sow their wild oats, and they go and they do something else. But if you look at the data, like, there's honestly no evidence that that's that's the case if if you look at 18 to 25 year olds the ones who go to college are more likely to go to church than the ones yeah. who don't go to college the ones who it's go to college are more likely to say they're uh, attached to a religious tradition than those who don't go to college in 50 so of 18 to 22 year olds in 2020 amongst people who did not go to college 50 percent of them were nuns 18 to 22 year olds non-college goers amongst those who were going to college only 40 percent of them were nuns so, you know, and by the way, they're just as likely to be atheists, whether they go to college or not. And, and so and the point I make in the book is like, listen, there's this old trope that pops around on Twitter. It's like you you think I can like indoctrinate your kid. He won't even read my syllabus or, right. or my required readings. Like I have him. I have some of my students for like two and a half hours a week total. How many hours do they spend on the quad or in the dining hall right. or in their room with their roommate? Those people have a bigger impact on their religiosity, their political persuasion, or everything else compared to what I do. I'm a frack, I'm a drop in the bucket of all the influence they have on them in college. So you know what it is? It's your, it's your kid going out and seeing different people, different racial backgrounds, different you know, um, different from from the city versus the rural area, people from different religious traditions. That's where they learn stuff. I'm not doing it. They're doing it because they got out of out of the sheltered world they grew up in and saw the world differently, and that's actually probably okay. Yeah, and you talked a little bit like the inoculation effect, like yeah, you know, it's like if they just keep. Yeah, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so the inoculation effects this idea like where you if you are mildly challenged by something. It actually reinforces what you already believe. It doesn't make you go the other way. And so really what college then presents is a series of mild challenges to your worldview, whether it be your political worldview, your religious worldview, or just your worldview overall. And so when you're kind of nudged, it's like what what, what a vaccine does, right? It gives you a little bit of a boost to your immune system. And actually, and, and, and just me personally, I left college believing fewer things, but believing them more sincerely than when I did when I got there. So I, I kind of had that... You know, there's the word deconstruction that pops around a lot, like on right. you know on mm -hmm. social media. I deconstructed like in the best possible way, which is why I came out believing more dogma, you know, like a tighter sense of dogma, but less of a hold on doctrine. And I think that has actually helped me tremendously as an adult navigating both my world as a pastor, but also as a social scientist. Not you know not not building hills to die on all the time. Mm. 
Interesting. All right. So that, yeah, that's a great chapter. I think, you know, that's one of the things that we talked about again with Chad in the last episode. Yeah. He works at a, a Christian college is talking about like, how do you prepare your kids for college? Like, how do we teach them? Um, but also, you know, what you're showing them through the data is it's not just the, it's the world that the context that they're in is pushing on them, not just yeah. a professor, something like that. But, you know, their the inoculation can also help happen sure. before they go to college, um, you know, because co the social order is going to be pushing on them in all, in all different ways. Mm -hmm. All right, so I got another one because this is this kind of strikes at Brian and I a little bit <laughs> is that non-denominational Christians are rare. So we come from a non-denominational background. Talk to a little bit about we, that. We were and old school. We were non-denominational before it was we were, cool. Before it was cool. Before it was like a thing. <laughs> we're like a we're a non-denomination denomination yeah. without a hierarchy. Well, anyway. we're, we're a group anyway. Yeah, <laughs> we're something. All right. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit there. Yeah, so and and I think this is a problem. The reason that this that everyone doesn't like they they forget about non-denominationals is because they're really hard to cover from a media standpoint, yeah. right? There's no annual meeting of all non-denominational Christians in America like there is the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting or the United Methodists have an annual or bi, it's actually biannual a biannual meeting, right? right? So there's no way to cover such an amorphous, disconnected, disjointed movement. So in 1972, about 3% of all Protestants were non-denominational, and now it's about 25% of all Protestants are non-denominational. If you look over the last 12 years, the only Protestant tradition in America that's growing is non-denominational. Like, yeah. there are fewer Baptists today than there were 10 years ago, fewer Methodists, fewer Presbyterians, fewer Lutherans, fewer Episcopalians. The only tradition that's bigger today than it was 10 years ago is non-denominational. And actually, to kind of tie into what we talked about, the evangelicalism is not in decline. I actually think the reason that evangelicalism is not in decline is because non-denominationals have sort of filled in the gap right. that have been left by, like the SBC has lost 2.1 million members right. over the last 15 years. Where are they going? By and large, they're going to non-denominational yeah. churches. Some of the congregations that are that are you know, withdrawing from the SBC and and being independent congregations now, for example, just just as an example there. Yeah. Yes. So, what do you? Th so, I mean, are you? I'm sure there's no way in the data to see like are those going from SBC to non-denominational? There's no way to like track like individually. No, I like track. I have data. Yeah. No. No. Oh, the, you, that, that's where. Yeah. The lion's share. When people leave evangelical, like leave their denomination in evangelicalism, they almost always stay inside the evangelical camp. They hardly ever jump the fence and become like an Episcopalian or like a, an ELCA Lutheran or someone like that. The vast majority of them, the jump is slight. You know, like you're not you're not jumping from like ah, uh, you know, like a Southern Baptist Church to like a very liberal United Church of Christ. You're going to a non-denom. And actually, theologically, if you compare Southern Baptists to non-denominationals, they're almost exactly the same. Um, you know, on things like view of the Bible and church attendance. And, and actually, interestingly enough, non-denominationals actually attend church more frequently now than non-denominationals did 40 mm. years ago. So you're, you're really getting like a very core committed group of people. And I think that's really where the growth of Christianity is happening, which is, which is really, really interesting because I think it's actually the most democratized form of religion you could possibly have, right? Which is like, there is no organizing body. It's all... So the way I think about it is for a long time, American Christianity has been all top down. Even Southern Baptists were top down, right? In terms of like, you were part of an association, but like, look at the United Methodists, look at the Catholic Church, look at um, you know, the, the ELCA. They're all very top down, right? Very hierarchical. And you know how non-denoms start? A guy, an insurance salesman in his basement, invites four families over and starts a Bible study, and bing, bang, boom, Bob's your uncle. Three years later, you got 500 people meeting every Sunday in a big building you just bought. Right? Yeah. 
without so, any sort of you, you get no yeah. you get no certification you got no theological training you got no one checking off saying you know what you believe it's just i want to start a church yeah. and so i isn't that the most american thing in the entire world though and, <laughs> okay. and that's how christianity has actually changed dramatically is you used to have to have an education to be a pastor and now it's almost looked down upon you if you did not do something else before you became a pastor okay well i got a question about that for you because oh, yeah. i'm just gonna say this because brian and i talked about this before because yeah. we come from a non-denominational and like every Christian church that I've been to, like there has been theological training, like the people that have mm-hmm. been uh, mm-hmm. leading are theologically trained, you know, at a minimum bachelors, most of them masters or or even going beyond like to a, a demon. So you yeah. make the, the comment like many of these pastors in these rapidly growing non-denominational churches have no theological training yep. or formal ordination ordination. So yeah. like maybe the ordination piece I can I can understand yeah. that because there's not a yeah. hierarchical system, but where do, where do you get the data that there's like no theological training? Cuz I I I would say for Brian and I like what we see in in the the circles we run in, yeah, that's that's not a true statement. Right. Yeah, so I think there's the problem with non-denoms is it's hard to track them because they're yeah, all right. over the place. Right. There's no like organizational structure for me to like tap into and say, can I interview your pastors kind of thing? Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking a lot about like. So there's this there's this really interesting phenomenon which I'm sure you guys are aware of, but I don't know if the listeners are. Like there's church planting networks now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like Acts 29, Ark. Uh, association related churches is one and the other one's called sin network which is really attached to the sbc but they act like they're non it's weird right. they're like mm-hmm. we're southern baptist but you're never going to know that because we're not right. going to put it on any of our literature um right. and in in those cases they they actually whenever they decide to call a pastor to be a, a planter at, theological education is not the thing that they care about more than anything else they care about you know what sure. their background is and what their family honestly what i've read a lot is what their wife does <laughs> like their wife, if your wife is not on board with what you do, they will automatically disqualify oh, yeah. you from from planting one of these churches. And you know what? I think it's actually a really interesting model because it's almost like yeah. a startup model, right? Where it's like we're going to give you money for the first two or three years, yeah. and then after that, you're on your own, Bucko. You better raise your own right. funds because we're not going to fund you anymore. And then if you do make enough money, then you have to give a certain percentage back to back. the church planting yeah. network. And so it kind of it's almost like a I don't want to use MLM, but in some ways it is like an MLM because like the money comes in, the money goes out, the money comes in, you know what I mean? So like it it gets all moved around and they've actually been really successful, but they don't, theological education is not a prerequisite to plant a church with, with, I know with ARC for a fact and with Acts 29, it's kind of, you know, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Well, here, I'll I'll say a couple of things. I mean, because we, we have lots of friends and even family members who who would be a part of those church planting networks. I mean, both Mm -hmm. Ryan and I. And we've seen, you know, tons of the people we went to school with have been involved in these. And even some of them are, are leaders in, in some of these other networks that maybe are smaller than the ones that you're seeing. But yeah. I, I would just say, I wonder, it, it, it's almost like what you were talking about earlier, the media bias. I think when it comes, comes to uh, pastors, um, uh, you know, talking about politics in the, in the pulpit, mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes the ones that are very publicized are those huge blow-ups that happen because somebody's basically going out there and making huge heretical statements or something like that. They're the ones who get, get the publicity. But then yeah. the other thing is, is I think you're saying formal. I wonder if there's a way to distinguish formal theological education and a theological education that takes place within the congregation. Uh, now, you know, I'm, I'm a real fan of formal theological education. You probably don't even know this, but, but you know, one of the things that I've done, uh, Ryan, is uh, started, uh, worked together with a, with a missions organization to start a a theological training school in another country because mm. you know when you only have when you only have education taking place within the congregations then it can become diluted over over a period of time 
But there is a way to, I think, you know, refresh that with bringing in instructors and that kind of thing. And I think some of these that you're you're talking about, yeah, they may not have an MDiv, but they may have received uh, formal some kind of formal mm-hmm. training, not necessarily through a seminary. Uh, just something for you to think about as you as you think through this. Just kind yeah. of a, a no. I'm actually writing a book on non-denominationals. Um, oh, cool. Well, if I ever get around to it. Come in and interview well, us then. Oh. oh, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, Are you the saying one you want to be back a... on here again? That's what you're trying to say. <laughs> no. You're trying to say is you want to be back on our podcast again. Well, that book's like way in the process. Like that's a whole deal. Like we, you know, I, that book's fun because we scraped um, the, the, the names of all the churches on the ARC website and like looked for like what kind of, very, like less than 10% of them use the word church in their name. Right. It's yep. always like, and we try to look for like commonalities, like the ones, by the way, the places where they're most Christian, they're more likely to use church in their name. And the places where they're least Christian, they're, they're less likely right. to use church in their name. But like words like river bend or river tree yep. or like the, the hills, or the, like that's what you see a lot now is, is naming. Yep. So like there's a chapter on names and places. So we're you trying see, to make it not just survey data, yeah. like other you stuff too. For a while it was directional. You know, there was North Point and <laughs> Southwest and, you know, that that was the, but you're right. I mean, you can see these trends. And then there's Could, a trend where there's just the single word too, you know, like. Arise. Right. The journey. Can you, also, can you do uh, statistics on haircuts of these church planters? Because <laughs> I think you're going to see there's some commonalities that might pop up or what they're. I, I think Skinny you mentioned the, or, anyway, I think you mentioned the Twitter, the the uh, pastors and sneakers maybe last time you were on too. But yeah, preachers and sneakers, man. Preachers Those guys gotta wear like a thousand dollar pair of Nikes to prove <laughs> right. their worth or something. It's anyway. weird. Yes. So anyway, that's that I, I did think that was a helpful and, and interesting chapter as well. But that's just our kind of our uh yeah. you know, again, not from the data, but for just from our uh, personal experience, our uh, uh you know, narratives there. Well, well, yeah. So what do you which of these do you think is the most important for the church. I mean, because this is, in some ways, yeah. you know, you're tr- trying to dispel myths for a purpose. Yeah. You know, it's it's for, you know, it's for the person, it's for the church. It could be for someone on the left or the right or wherever, however they identify. You know, like, what do you think are the, what which of these do you think is most important for, like, a, a church to understand or t- mm-hmm. to see, to think about? Yeah, the one about the, the nuns are rising because people are leaving church. I think that the one that I think that that I I'm actually going to incorporate back into the nuns the second edition is the idea that you know Pat, when you when you give the world when you when you when you have a hammer the whole world looks like a nail okay right. and pastors have basically been getting a hammer where they're taught everything in the world is theological like people leave the church for theological reasons that's actually not true most people don't actually even leave the church what happens is they're being raised without religion Okay, a, a growing number, a growing segment of America now is growing up with no religious affiliation at all. It's probably at least a third of young people today are growing up in a house with no religion at all when it was around 10 or 12 percent 30 years ago. So what's happening is we're not seeing people actively say, well, I grew up evangelical or Baptist or Methodist, and I left that for these very good, well thought out reasons on, you know, on policy or gay marriage or whatever it is. Instead, what we're seeing is people have never been raised with religion to begin with, right? Which actually, I think, presents two different things. One is the fact that they're not generically Christian. So they don't have any sort of background. They don't understand the Good Samaritan or, you know, the prodigal son. They don't understand what the crucifixion was about or atonement or the Old Testament. They have no 
theological understanding of anything at all. That's A, which means you had to approach that differently. But B, that also means that they you can't you can't try to convince them about church in the same way that you would with someone who has some theological background. You're not trying. Right. You know, you have to start from the the ground up there and approach them because they're not generically Christian like America was for you know basically 300 years, right? So I think it creates a whole new set of evangelistic questions that we've never had to think about before because the world we're approaching now has literally never existed in our lifetime. So the tools that we had worked when we had a majority Christian country and people left, you know, as adults or in their teen years. But when you never grow up without religion, you're a different audience entirely and new tools need to be developed to talk with those people in a different way. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. So there's just, there's, there's no theological, there's no, there's nothing there. There's no common groundwork. You've got to start from the groundwork. I mean, it's literally groundwork. Yeah. And, and this is something I'm going to really hit on in, in the next version of the nuns is there's a huge difference between being secular and being non-religious, right? Secular people are atheist agnostics. They hate religion. They don't, they want, they want the churches to be taxed. They want it to be closed. They want to empty the pews. They want religion to go away. That's about 10 or 12% of America. But a huge chunk of America, probably 20 to 25% of America is just non-religious, which is like, I'm not Christian, but I'm not an atheist either. I believe in God. I go to church with my grandma, you know, once a year or whatever. Like, I'm not turned off by religion. And the way that we think about that is, I think a lot of evangelical pastors especially say that all nuns are secular, when really most nuns are non-religious. And that non-religious category is really the growing category in American life. And they're, they're, they're willing to be persuaded either way, which creates a a huge, you know, incentive and a huge mission field to use an evangelical sure. term for that group of people. Right. That's good. I have a couple more questions. I don't know what, what else you've got, Ryan, but the the one you mentioned, the idea of the, the COVID uh, pandemic and the effect that's going to have on, on attendance. And I know you're not a prophet. You're a, you're looking at data kind of in the past, but yeah. do you have any, are there any observations that can be made yet? Or is it just too early to even say what effect that has had mm-hmm. or will have? So here's what makes it almost impossible. We might never figure this out, by the way. And I think this is not an answer that no one, but this is like, remember we talked about like how I'm a professional. So I think about these questions all the time. So let's say that I look at data from, you know, like late in 2019. So right before the pandemic. And then let's say again in, you know, late this year when the pandemic is basically over for all intents and purposes, right? Let's say I say that weekly attendance has dropped 4% between 2019 and 2022. Right. What percentage of that can I chalk up to COVID and what percentage can I chalk up to the fact that every day in America, old people are dying right. and are being replaced by people who are younger and who are less religious? And in so, the nuns category kind of thing. Yeah, you know? exactly so. right. So like if you consider the fact that 71% of people who are dying are, are Protestant or Catholic and are being replaced by 40, you know, 35% of people who are Protestant or Catholic. Right. You're going to see a natural switching over generational replacement over time. So how do I figure out what is due to COVID specifically right. and what is just natural progression of society shifting over time? So I think the, 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 the sad answer is, and this is the answer that no pastor wants, we'll <laughs> never be able to parse exactly what the impact of COVID was because it happened in a stream of other things that were happening and it might deviate, you know, like maybe the trend line turns up a little bit or down a little bit, depending on your perspective. But how do we, how do I isolate what was this and what was that? I will never get there. Okay. Are there, are there social science studies being, I mean, I'm sure there are being done on this, I suppose, and try, yes, trying to parse it out. Yes. There's a huge one out of Hartford, um, Hartford Seminary. They got like a $6 million Lilly grant to do um, analysis of just congregations and how they're dealing with COVID. 
And it's still early days on that. But I think if, if anyone can give me the answer to that question, it's it's them. Because okay. they're doing not just surveys like I would do, but they're also doing like on-the-ground study where they're actually going okay. to congregations, talking to pastors, talking to congregations, and doing more what we call the qualitative, qualitative work. Yeah. yeah. So you get, to me, if anyone can kind of crack this nut, it's, it's that group there. But again, they're working in six different regions across America. They're spending $6 million. It's like a whole research team. And yeah. they might not give us answers for... Until 2024, 2025. Okay. I was going to say 10 years, maybe, but that's yeah, the Hartford, we, Hartford Seminary. Is that what you said? Hartford Seminary. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll look for that. Uh, Scott Thuma is the guy who was running that show. And he, okay. you know, he's, he's one of the best in the business. So I, I trust they'll do a good job with this. Well, here's my last question then is if for, from for me anyway, is I really loved your conclusion. And, and I, I kept thinking as I read it and there's a, there's a powerful story. I don't even want to tell because I want the reader to experience it. I want them to pick up your book, read it. But I, I read this this story and and you kind of summarized it and you gave some really good insight I think into how to have good conversations and especially you talked about uh, having a certain amount of epistemological humility you know and and a certain amount of humility when it comes to having these kind of discussions which I think is a necessary a necessary thing but I kept thinking I almost wish that that was in the introduction rather than conclusion mm. I almost yeah. wish that you had started with that. Uh, because you know, as you read through these chapters, you're you're you know you're hitting at some pretty, uh, I don't say sacred cows, and some you know some you're, you're you know you're hitting us with 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 things that you know are, are making us really think. Uh, and so I guess I guess you know here's my statement: is I'll say I, I I really hope people pick up your book and read it with an open mind. But that for me, that conclusion really uh, uh, kind of helped me to think about this. And you talked a little bit about how how to have these discussions, but you mentioned what is it three things there in that last chapter you say that, yeah. that we should do do to have good good discussions. Uh, anything else you want to say about that, or or how, you know how do you think that can help us uh, moving forward? I suppose. Yeah. So I compare um, Donald Rumsfeld to Robert McNamara. Yeah. Um, both secretaries of defense, both um, during wartime. Rumsfeld during Iraq and uh, McNamara during the Vietnam conflict. And, you know, I think both, we can admit, I think objectively we can say both were disasters um, from a foreign policy perspective, from the loss of life perspective, not just American soldiers, but also um, innocent civilians in both countries. Um, McNamara was actually very introspective later in life. And, and you know, he, he said, you know, in this really interesting documentary, I think we, we all should watch called The Fog of War. He basically says, I really think we need to think more carefully about what war really means and the consequences of war, not just at the time, but also in the future. And you can tell that he really regretted a lot of the decisions that he made in Vietnam and in the loss of life. I think he felt personally responsible for that. Um, Rumsfeld got us into Iraq, which by any measure was an absolute debacle, did not really do anything what they said it was going to do. And Donald Rumsfeld died last year completely strident in his belief that what they did in Iraq was the right thing to do. Absolutely no sober second thought. Absolutely no questioning of his decision-making, his policy-making in Iraq. And I think that's the problem, is you. we always need to be able to take in information and admit that our mistakes and change our minds, right? There's nothing wrong. And I cannot, like, I need to have, like, this, like, tattooed on my forehead. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with changing your mind. And I tell the story of this guy who, who went to a protest, and I saw a sign, and it said, sorry it took me so long. I had a lot to learn. And I'm right. like, wow, man, like what a cool, hu you know, humility right. to say something like that, 
right? Like what I said to you a year ago was wrong. Like I was in the wrong state of mind. I believed the wrong things about the world. And now I understand the world in a different way and I've changed my mind. What a beautiful thing, right? For Christians and for everyone else to say like the way I thought about, and I'll even say it, the way that a lot of Christians think about race or have thought about race for a long time is wrong. It's just flat out wrong because they did not consider the other side. Right. They didn't think about what people of color deal with. And now you don't have to go like, like start marching for black lives matter or like start teaching CRT from the pulpit, but at least acknowledging that your worldview is not the only worldview that exists and your experiences are not universal. What a great way to approach conversation. And I think we should be a lot more like Robert McNamara, even though he did some terrible atrocious things, than we, we should be by Donald Rumsfeld. Right. Yeah. I appreciate that. And, and you know, the, we talk about hermeneutics on here a lot, really. That's more our wheelhouse than, than statistics and data. That's why we appreciate having you on. But, uh, you know, one of the one of the important things in hermeneutics is having a certain amount of uh, humility when it comes to our approach to the text, or, or, or else you will simply be repeating what has always been said or what you've always thought in regard to this. And I'm, I'm talking even in the way we interpret Scripture or uh, understand the world around us. So I, I really even, appreciate that. Isn't that the scientific method though, right? Like we believe something about the world and then we come around and go, wow, we didn't, we were completely wrong about that thing because we've right. got new data. We got better methods. And I think that's, that's something that like the scientific, and I talk about this in the book, thinking empirically is the way forward. Like thinking about the world empirically is really the only way we can come together. And unfortunately that's really, really hard to do. Even for me who does it for a living, it's impossible right. to do, but yeah. it, that, it's a better way than what we're doing yeah. right now. The idea of paradigm shift is really, you know, this, this idea that, that we, we have these major shifts in, in the way we see things. So yeah. Ryan, did you have anything else for Ryan's? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, you know, I guess, let me ask you this. What do you think though? And, and I'm kind of wrapping this up. What are the limits? You know, we talk about empiricism moving to like an empirical, but like, what are the limits of it? Cause at some point, you know, that there is, you know, even the questions we ask come from a certain context, you know what I mean? Like, so mm-hmm. like in some of the, the things you say, like, well, someone has to like, they only get these four options, but I'm, you know, I'm, I have some skepticism, not about your data, but just like how did you know, you asked like who who made these questions and if you'd asked this question differently this way, yeah, your data would have looked different. Well, you like, cite how to how to lie with statistics. You cite this classic, you know, book yes. in the fifties. So, so what yeah. are the what are the limits of it? And is there, you know, as we get to empiricism, you mm-hmm. know, I think that's one of the things that Brian and I have talked about is, you know, there's statistics that are thrown out there, but like, boy, if you cut them a different way, it tells a very different story. So how do we yeah. get to that? that, uh, you know, that root Mm. objectiveness of it all. That's, so I think that the true objectivity is a myth. Actually, it should be like the 21st myth of the book. True objectivity is a myth. Um, I'm not objective. You're not objective. No human being ever on earth is objective. We all have our own biases, our own experiences, our own worldviews. But just because I can't draw a perfect circle doesn't mean I should stop trying to draw a perfect circle. Right. Like to me, it's it's the it's the it's the brass ring of my life is to try to be as objective as I possibly can in this work that I do right here. Right. So I think that is the that is an inherent limit on empiricism. And and that's the problem is even like with I think COVID has been a great like study in empiricism, like because some people will look at data 
and will come to a completely different conclusion than other people looking at the exact same data. Like, well, I should probably wear a mask now. And some people go, wow, it's really low. I shouldn't wear a mask now looking at the exact, you know, the exact same statistics. Like I'll give a statistic like, you know, that the uh, infection fatality rate of Omicron is like 0.5%. So like one in 200 people get infected, die of Omicron. For some people, they go, oh, those, those odds are great. Let's go out to the bar. And for other people, they look at those odds and go, wow, one in 200 chance I could die? Absolutely not. So even when you give an objective empirical fact, it's still interpreted in light of our own bias. Are we more risk averse? Are we are we more, you know, not risk averse? So even with empiricism, it still has to be filtered through our own biases and our own emotions. And we'll never get around that. But I guess my my role is to say, well, here's the data. You tell me if this is high or low. You tell me if this changes your life or not. That's on you. It's not on me. Yeah. So there's still a certain amount of interpretation that comes, has to comes be. with this. And, yeah. It has to be, right? Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, Ryan, as was yeah. last time, it's like drinking from the fire hose. You're telling us all <laughs> kinds of things to think about. And uh, I talk you know, fast. I say a lot of words that don't make any sense, but I try no, to no, no, make plenty of sense. You know, we, we wouldn't have had you back on if it didn't make sense. Yeah. Wow. Um, but great book. Uh, Brian yeah. and I both have enjoyed reading it and, and get to, uh, getting to dive in it. Thank you yeah. for you shared it with us a little early here. Yeah. So I, tell, us, yeah, tell us again where we can find your new book, 20 Myths uh, About Religion and Politics in America. Wherever fine books are sold, um, you can buy it on the uh, the Fortress Press website. That's my publisher. I think I get a bigger, a little bit bigger cut if you buy it from them. But honestly, it's it's six and one half dozen the other. But it's also available on ebook. You can buy it on on Kindle through Amazon right now. But an audio book is forthcoming. Probably in the oh. next uh, um, two or three months, there'll be an audio book. And there's also an audio book version of The Nuns that came out, too. So uh, I don't read either of them. That's, I was going to say, if you narrate them, they're going to be like 30 minutes a piece. I'm, right? <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine who the narrator is, and especially describing the charts, all the charts. Yeah, it, it, these. I'll, I'll just be honest. Like the, This is not the, like the most primo audio right experience ever existed yeah. but it is you know i mean some people have the, bought the audiobook so I've, I've seen my royalty statement so they are being purchased um <laughs> well, it's like it's like so there's a big thick line here and then there's another <laughs> there's another one next to it that's not nearly as Graph tall one tells yeah. you yeah um but I, you know what's interesting about that is like when i was doing the i i wanted to have like a, a a black and white version for the print but also a color version for the kindle but they don't do it that way you have to oh, give the same version for both right. and it actually would make my life a ton easier if i could do color because a lot of graphs yeah. work better with color so it's it's a whole thing but i mean you can buy on you can buy on, uh, obviously and by the way 20 miss is hardcover it's it's not a, a paperback like the nuns was 250 pages 65 graphs almost 60,000 words you can buy it on hardcover you can buy it through kindle you can buy it on ebook soon not not yet but you also buy the nuns um, which is still out it'll be out a year next month um, you can find me on twitter at ryan burge uh, my my personal website is ryanburge.net um, and you can easily find my contact information. You know, my email address is is easily accessible online through my EIU website or wherever. Um, love to hear from you. Anything else that you're you've got in the pipeline? Anything else coming up that you want to talk about? Or uh, yeah, so I just signed a contract to do uh, Nuns version two. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. So that's going to come out in uh, in March of 2023. It's going to be like a revised and expanded edition of The Nuns. I'm adding probably at least um, 50 or 60 pages of more content to that book, updating all the graphs from 2018 all the way to 2021, so adding three more years of data on top of that. And I'm going to add a chapter specifically on COVID 
and what you know oh, what cool. COVID did to the American church and American religion, and, and just kind of just adding, just making that book more full. Um, okay. And that's coming out in March. And I'm also just signed on to um, take over the authorship of the best-selling religion and politics textbook in America. It's really called, it's called Religion and Politics in America. Wow. It's in the eighth edition right now, and the ninth edition will come out next spring as well. So that's cool. that's like wow. a textbook, but it's actually going to be written where the average person can probably learn a ton by reading it. It's just more dense than like what I would write typically. So that's coming out next uh, spring as well. Cool. Fantastic. Well, Ryan, thank you so very much for your time and sharing us uh, a little bit about the data and what you've learned and what we should be learning as we as we look at this data. It's always a pleasure, guys. Appreciate it. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. You can find show notes, links, and more at thebiblebistro.com and find links there to follow us on social media. Next week, Brian and I are talking all about the Samaritans. There are several stories from the life of Jesus that mention the Samaritans. There's an obvious tension in scripture between the Jewish people uh, and the Samaritans, but we don't get a whole lot of background information on why that tension is there. In next week's episode, Brian and I look at the historical background of the Samaritans and why Jesus's interactions with the Samaritan woman at the well and the story of the Good Samaritan were so powerful and important. As I mentioned, this episode is full of historical information and is a fun conversation we hope you will join us for. Thanks again for listening and sitting with us at the table in the bistro. We'll be back at the table next Tuesday.